Voice Nation. Ahoy, me hearties, and welcome as we kick off the new year with a notably nautical installment of Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. Always a good time to embrace the whole concept of the New Year's resolution. Here's an idea for you. Manage to go the entire year without accidentally telling someone from the hospital on the phone, love you, as the call ends. Although many a scheduler did seem to appreciate it when I let that one slip. Well, this is Kevin Brown, your beneficent boatswain here on the USS Box Opener. I hope you're having fair winds and following seas. I know I certainly am. And today is a really exciting episode as we have an amazing conversation teed up with a real titan of trauma. The only surgeon to have sat on the Synthes Board of Directors, HSS Lifetime Achievement Award recipient. In my humble opinion, it should technically be AO slash ASIF slash Dr. David Helfett. A CV to rule them all. You're going to want to hang around for that as we talk about his distinguished career and what has him excited these days. Well, regular listeners know I'm a Nordhaven trawler wannabe owner. I am obsessed with these go-slow trawler yachts that can weather just about anything. They're the yachting equivalent of the G-Shock watch. And I routinely scratch that itch on a website called Yacht Forums. And a story that caught my eye there recently was a meeting of sorts between a Anchor, the Tropic Breeze, and the mega yacht Utopia 4 off the coast of New Providence Island. Us reps love meetings, especially when there's free food involved, but this was not a meeting that anybody would want to attend as it involved the Utopia 4 running slam into the rear of the Tropic Breeze on Christmas night, eventually sinking the tanker and sending the crew into the water. These were not exactly bay boats by any stretch of the imagination. The tanker was 160 feet long, and the super yacht Utopia was even longer, coming in at 207 feet long. So what happened, and how did these two huge boats end up just running into each other? Well, let's define two technologies that should have prevented this mishap, FLIR and AI. FLIR. How do you spell that? F-L-I-R. It's forward-looking infrared radar. Basically gives you night vision. I knew a friend of mine that had that on his BMW 7 Series. Probably a 99% useless feature. But that 1% of being able to tell all your friends, look, I've got night vision on my BMW 7 Series. That pretty much trumps everything else, right? And AIS, what's that? It's an automatic identification system that will basically show you the position of any watercraft on the globe that has one of these transponders. Super cool technologies, both of them. Well, the Utopia 4 Mega Yacht had both of these things, right? It had a FLIR and an AIS. Well, what went wrong? Well, problem number one, the FLIR was not pointed in the right direction. Problem number two, AIS should have indicated the tanker's position, but clearly the helmsman was technologically unprepared to run all those screens screens and run a ship at that size, at that speed, in the middle of the night. And number three, what about just looking out the front window, said Captain Obvious. I mean, it's a 160-foot cargo ship and all the lights are on, right? But I digress. That whole incident reminded me of a book for sale on Amazon right now, How to Avoid Huge Ships by Captain John Trimmer. And no, I am not making that up. And at $300 for the paperback, I feel confident he has yet to sell a single copy. But around 1,500 people have felt obligated to review it, and many of them are pretty hilarious. I'll read you just one. 
I wish I'd read this highly informative title in the late 90s. My husband and I both suffer from PTH-SCD, post-traumatic huge ship collision disorder, which we acquired while piloting our own huge ship. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were carrying over 3 million gallons of blue paint to Morocco when, wouldn't you know it, we collided with our competitors. They had about 4 million gallons of red-brown paint on board, and before we knew it, we were all marooned. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Well, savvy listeners know there's a teachable moment somewhere on this poop deck. There is a huge ship bearing down on us. It's been steaming in our direction for some time now. And for many of us, this is a huge ship that has the potential to damage our hull or even capsize our boat. Or it will be a ship we will figure out how to ride alongside safely and securely. And that, you scurvy dogs, is our New Year's resolution for 2022. How to avoid getting hit by this huge ship, the USS Business of Medicine, and instead leverage the opportunities it brings. Some might say, Kevin, this business of medicine stuff is for surgeons, clinics, hospitals, sales managers. I'm a lowly box opener. What does this have to do with me? Well, let's look out the front window for a second and see what's going on. The trend toward larger teams, less inventory, commission cuts, few, if any, development projects for your entrepreneurial surgeons, social media clampdowns, rifts, a big one just this past week, reps being charged, shipping, couriers, and on and on. It sounds like a pretty big ship, doesn't it? And the lights are on. It's not like we don't see it off the bow of the boat. Well, today, let's just talk about our reaction to these very real things going on around us. Reactions. As I talk to reps around the country about this ship bearing down on us, they seem to fall in one of three categories. The undertaker, the caretaker, and the overtaker. That's good salesy stuff here. Let's explore this. The undertaker, this rep sees the USS business of medicine as so exceedingly large and fraught with peril. And big word here, fraught with change, that their only response is to complain about it on Cafe Pharma. I love this quote from Albert Einstein, of all people, stay away from negative people as they have a problem for every solution. Indeed. Well, let's look at the caretaker. This rep reminds me very much of the horse Boxer in George Orwell's classic book, Animal Farm. Do you remember what his response was to everything? I will work harder. In the book, he was presented as a hard worker, strong, loyal, caring. Unfortunately, he was so loyal, the pigs took advantage of him, right? And they worked him Till he collapsed. Well, you know what? The business of medicine has the potential to do just that to a lot of us. And I know you're thinking, Kevin, that sounds so negative. Well, I am positive that you cannot work your way out of declining commission rates, increased expenses coupled with declining ASP. I will work harder is not a strategic plan. And I can't tell you how many reps I've heard say that exact line to me, not knowing it came straight out of Animal Farm. I will work harder. Well, that leads us to the next reaction I've seen, and that is the overtaker. What's the definition? The dictionary says it's a person or thing which overtakes. Well, duh. Well, what does overtake them? Two definitions I like. To become greater or more successful than. We all like that one as sales reps, but I really like this one. To catch up with and pass while traveling in the same direction. Isn't that good? And that, my collegial confreres, is our real New Year's resolution. No denial here. 
The business of medicine is clearly visible on our FLIR, AIS, and that Captain Obvious front window we talked about earlier. This is not the time to be negative about it. It's not going to change anything. It's not a plan, nor should we absorb the negative energy of others around us who choose to look at it that way. I will work harder is laudable, and I know a lot of you work extremely hard, and I want to encourage you. So many of you have been doing the right thing successfully for years. Great job but you haven't found a way yet to add an hour to the day, have you? And so many of us are already working all the time. So as George Costanza so eloquently said, as I rained blows upon him, I said, there must be a better way. And I believe there is. There is a better way. Embrace your inner overtaker. Let's collectively look at this large ship and strategically and positively figure out how to run alongside it and, if possible, pass it. I believe it can be done. I believe it must be done. And I look forward to exploring what that looks like practically to you and me. This is important stuff, and we're going to dedicate a few episodes to it. So be on the lookout. Well, a large ship in this trauma world of orthopedics, one you simply cannot avoid, he's on all the screens, is Dr. David. Helfit, and it is such an incredible honor to be invited into his wheelhouse. Dr. Helfit, welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Dr. Helfit, your handprints certainly deserve to be immortalized in cement on the trauma walk of fame. I look forward to asking you about your distinguished career, AO, ASIF, golf. But first, let's go back to Cape Town, South Africa. What put you on the path to medicine? Well, I'm very fortunate. Uh, my role model was my father, and my father was an orthopedic surgeon, a very famous orthopedic surgeon in the British sphere of influence and in South Africa. According to my dad, from the age of four, I wanted to be a doctor. I never wanted to be a truck driver or a policeman. Or, uh, I have two brothers. They all wanted to be all the other things, and I wanted to be a doctor. Once I expressed that interest, I can remember as a, as a kid when my dad would go around in the hospital on a Saturday and I wasn't playing sport because a lot of interscholastic sport in South Africa was played on Saturday mornings and I played a lot of sport. If I wasn't playing sport, I would go with him to the hospital and round. So I, I sort of got into it early on. A dear friend of mine went to Cape Town Medical School around the same time you were there. It seems like a vibrant medical community. Did you get that same feeling going to school there? I think at the time I went to medical school in South Africa, which was in the uh, late 60s and se early 70s, I don't think there was a better place in the world to be a medical student and to be trained to be a doctor because we had the first world teachers in a sort of third world environment. Right. So we had all of the uh, problems that people suffered in a third world with the best teaching possible. So we were able to get a lot of experience early and take care of a lot of people with a lot of severe and interesting problems. So I think it was a unique time, and I was fortunate to be at that time and to take advantage of it. A residency at Johns Hopkins. I saw your name on some total knee replacement courses in the 80s. Why did orthopedic trauma ultimately call your name? When I was a medical student in South Africa, the hospital and the university where I trained, University of Cape Town, trauma was a big part of what the what we call casualty, right. and emergency was a big part of our training. And I was always fascinated by it. And then I went to a place called Edendale Hospital, which was in Zululand, and I was an intern and junior resident there. 
and that was a three and a half thousand bedded hospital and a large volume of trauma, mostly automobile related and work related. I realized early on at that stage that of all the disciplines in medicine, if you think about it, trauma, you can take someone who's normal, healthy, and if you can do it, resuscitate them, fix it properly and have them return to their former life, you're taking someone who's normal and you've given them a chance to be normal again as productive members of society. If you think about most other fields of medicine, we're not starting with normal. You've got chronic heart disease, you've got kidney disease, you've got diabetes, you've got all these other things, and you're just trying to give them the best possibility in a um, chronic situation. So trauma really is unique. And in the world I was brought up in South Africa, for a lot of people that didn't have wealth, if you couldn't restore them to normal, they couldn't earn a living. They couldn't look after their family. So it became even more important. And um, I thought I could make the biggest impact and it was the most challenging. We'd love to hear more about how you landed at Johns Hopkins and about your experience there. So I I was very fortunate to get a residency at Johns Hopkins. I was uh, doing general surgery actually uh, at this hospital because they didn't have an orthopedic in this hospital in Zuland. But we did all the orthopedics. We did all the trauma with um, orthopedic attendings, but we were general surgery residents, as we call them, registrars. Very busy place. You can imagine with three and a half thousand patients. Finally said, Dad, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was not sure then what field I would do trauma, but I wanted to do trauma. And then I finally saw the light. And maybe I didn't see the light initially because I just didn't want to be my dad's son. I wanted to mark my own way in life. Maybe my ego got the better of it, and then I finally realized that that was ridiculous. At that time, he thought I could get a better orthopedic residency in the United States. He obviously thought I was a much better student than I was, and I was much smarter than I was. So he suggested I apply to all the famous university hospitals for orthopedics in the United States, one of them being Johns Hopkins. So I sent these applications. In those days, you had to write out these applications. There was no computers. Fill out all these forms. And then I heard back from Johns Hopkins and all the others, all the other famous places in North America. Thank you for your interest. We haven't met our selection committees yet. We'll follow up when we do. And then I got a letter from Johns Hopkins asking me to interview two weeks hence from when I got the letter. And at that time, one of my co-registrars had just come down with hepatitis. And so instead of being on call every third night, we were on call every second night. So I I was in the quandary. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I really couldn't leave, but I didn't want to give up this opportunity. So I wrote back and explained the situation to Johns Hopkins, to the professor, Robbie Robinson, who turned out to be one of my mentors subsequently. And I explained my quandary, and I said, really, I cannot leave. Hopefully, you'll give me an opportunity at some other time. According to his secretary, who told me subsequently, that when he got that letter, he said, that's the guy we want telling me he can interview the day he starts. (laughs) And probably I didn't have the academic credentials to even go to Johns Hopkins, but he just, um, that was a different time. One man made the decision and he ended up being one of my great mentors, taught me a lot when I was a resident at Johns Hopkins. And until he died, he supported my career. Great guy. You went on to an AO fellowship in Switzerland with Professor Reinhold Gans, a real pioneer in hip preservation. That had to be quite an experience working with him. So that's another good story because while I was there as a resident, Maurice Mueller, who was Reinhold Dunce's teacher and mentor and one of the most famous orthopedic surgeons in Switzerland, 
of the last century, both in trauma and the AO and in joint replacement, was a visiting professor at Johns Hopkins. My chief, Robbie Robinson, said to me, I was, I think, uh, my penultimate year as a resident, he said, for the next two days, you have no responsibilities in the hospital. You are Professor Mueller's valet, servant, driver, whatever he wants. <laughs> you pick him up at the airport and take care of him. So I did, and I got to know Professor Mueller, who was one of the founders of the AO and one of the world's greatest orthopedic trauma surgeons and, and surgeons. And he offered me a fellowship to go to Switzerland. And his protege was Reinhold Gantz. And by the time I got there for my fellowship, he, Professor Mueller stepped down as chief and Reinhold Gantz took over. But I still got to work with both of them. So that was very fortuitous. I was just lucky to be at Johns Hopkins that time, meet Professor Mueller. And both he, Professor Maurice Mueller, and Professor Reinhold Gantz became uh, mentors and wonderful friends. And I learned so much from the two of them for many years, not just during my time there, but thereafter. A quick stop in Tampa. You were HSS bound. Uh, what inspired you to move up north and set up shop at, uh, at HSS? So I was at, on Johns Hopkins when I came back on staff after my trauma fellowship and my sports fellowship. And I was doing too much sports, not enough acute trauma. So uh, uh, Phil Spiegel, who was the chief in Tampa, offered me a job at a level one trauma center in Tampa. I was there for five years. It was fantastic. Uh, I became chief of trauma there. And I was very happy until we had a falling out with the university, our group. And as politics took over, and so we left the university, which didn't appeal to me. And that same time, Andy Weiland was chief at HSS, who had been one of my mentors at Johns Hopkins. And he uh, invited me to interview and to come up and build a trauma service at uh, HSS. And that's what happened in uh, 1991. Some people believe that if orthopedics was the universe, then HSS is the sun that so much orbits around. Congratulations on your Lifetime Achievement Award there. Thank you. Yeah, HSS is unique. In anything, it's wanted to be a super specialized institution. And we have this advantage. We're a separate hospital. We're a, we are a mecca for orthopedic training, most sought after residents in the country. Just before COVID, we were doing uh, somewhere uh, like 36,000 orthopedic operations a year. It's a good place to work because you have a lot of super specialists. People are well-trained, and the whole hospital works for you. I was very lucky. You were the director of trauma service there for so many years. Uh, practically speaking, what does a day in the life of a trauma director look like for you? Most people who want to do trauma want to be want to take care of patients. So I try to minimize the, the administrative stuff and bring on people to do that. And as a chief of trauma, I wanted to be chief of trauma in the operating room, seeing patients in the emergency room. So I sort of tailored my life to do that and then train residents and fellows. And um, I think one of the great gifts we have is just like I had mentors who had tremendous impact on my life, not just during my training, but thereafter. And so I've tried over the over the 30-year period to uh, train residents, but more important, to nurture and train and mentor orthopedic trauma fellows. And I think now we're in the, we've done I've done that for over 70. That's a unique opportunity and advantage, and it makes it all worthwhile. What does your practice look like these days? Uh, still taking trauma call? No, no. I'm 74 now, 
when I was uh, 65, I decided no more trauma call. I had a, a good enough referral practice of trauma that I didn't. I could still do the acute kind of trauma that I wanted to do without taking emergency room call, and I stopped. You do so many procedures all over the body. I just wanted to ask you, is there one particular procedure over the years that you've enjoyed doing the most? Initially, when I started um, doing orthopedic trauma, I was happy to do anything. At that time, the most demanding and the most area where there was an opportunity to really develop remarkable skills and change the paradigm was in practice of the pelvis and of the cup of the hip joint. Now it's become more commonplace, but then it wasn't that commonplace. It's complicated surgery, risky surgery. So I decided early on that this was where I was really going to make my impact, and I was very fortunate. AOI, it was founded in 1972, just nine years young when you arrived in Bern. I would love to hear your thoughts on the state of AO back in the 80s, and, and where are we now? The AO really started in the early 1960s and started with four Swiss surgeons who realized that treating people with ski injuries in casts and immobilization was not a good thing, that they were having a tough time getting back to. So they started to develop techniques to fix fractures, initially ski injuries, leg fractures. And I was very fortunate because Maurice Mueller was one of the founders of that. And as a result of that, I was inculcated into this organization in 1981, 82, when I was doing my fellowship in Switzerland. And I thought this was an incredibly noble cause. And these were very good doctors, surgeons, very smart guys. They decided to try and bring a coterie of surgeons worldwide into this organization to teach trauma care and surgery with hands-on courses and do this worldwide. I got in early. I got in and I was a member of the AO as of 1982. I've traveled all over the world teaching for that same organization. Never been paid for doing that. What they did is paid your expenses and all the people involved in the AO, none of us ever got paid. We just did this because it was a good thing to do. As of a few years ago, the AO had trained somewhere between half to a million surgeons and somewhere about a million nurses in trauma care and taking care of fractures, etc. Wow. So it's really quite a remarkable organization. Now, it, then it became, as you say, AOI, AO International. I think it came, became that, that new designation with trustees and a big foundation in the 80s. It still exists. And then I've been involved very extensively in North America because we have a branch in North America called AO North America. 80% of orthopedic residents in America go to an AO course, and the um, AO continues to teach teachers and teach residents and, and promote research and promote better care for trauma patients. So where did ASIF come into play in those years? ASIF is just the English translation of the AOI, which is a German name. Okay. And the English translation is Association for the Study of Internal Fixation. Well, in 1984, Oda was born. 13 years later, you would take the helm as president. By the way, you had an amazing mustache back then. I just wanted to tell you that. Thought, <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm just jealous because I can't grow one. Any thoughts or stories you'd like to share about your experience as part of that amazing organization? It actually started a little before that, and it was called the Orthopedic Trauma Hospital foundation, I think. And it was like 10 or 12 level one trauma centers in the United States. 
And then they formed, then we became an organization called ODA, as you said. And it was just started out as another fledgling portion of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in the subspecialty. Orthopedics is such a vast specialty that in order to really push the envelope, we need subspecialty organizations that can help nurture, train, provide resources, raise money, provide support and education and publications. And so the Orthopedic Trauma Association has become that for trauma. Obviously, we have those for joints, for spine, for sports, for hand, for foot. But the trauma one has now really taken off and become one of the big ones. In 2017, Dr. Helfett, you received the AO Recognition Award. I've seen so many course titles of yours that were, quote unquote, how not to do AO. And I'm just curious, what did that phrase mean to you then? And and what does it mean now, how not to do AO? As you can imagine, as as a sort of an older trauma surgeon, you get to get all all the cases that didn't work out. Right. Some were difficult problems that no one could have worked out, but uh, others were, you know, maybe not done the perfect way or the circumstances or whatever it was. This wasn't a legal, wasn't a, about legality and um, negligence. It was just about we learn more about other people. We learn more from other people's mistakes than we learn from our own successes. And so I thought it was a unique way to teach by showing where things did not work out, not trying to. Um, hold people accountable, but rather using that as a a way to learn what not to do. So that became sort of one of my go-to ways to teach. And that's why uh, at a lot of courses it became popular and they wanted me to give these kind of talks. I believe you were the only surgeon on Cynthia's board of directors. Uh, What was that experience like? That was a unique experience because Cynthia's was the implant company that gave the royalties to the AO. I got to know the people at Synthes, obviously. I've never been an employee of Synthes, but the uh, chairman of the company called me up one time and said um, they had no, at that stage, they didn't have a doctor or a scientist on the board. Called me up and he said, I'd like you to meet with the board. I'd be interested if you would join the board as a member of the board of directors or something. It was a wonderful experience for me. Uh, I've told everybody that it was like uh, my, my MBA. Right. It was fantastic because I think initially I didn't contribute much. I just sat there and listened. There were some very smart guys and from very different disciplines in business on the board. And the company was very successful, as you know. After a while, I realized uh, I really could contribute because uh, having someone who understood the end user, understood what a trauma patient was, understood what was needed, I think had some uh, impact and benefit on the board. And uh, they taught me about business and I told them about trauma patients and trauma implants and what was needed and what was not needed. So I think it was a symbiosis, a good symbiosis. We'll talk about contribution, doctor. In 2010, there was a devastating earthquake in Haiti. And I read an incredible story about the experiences you had taking a team there. Any thoughts on that trip then and the most recent earthquake there? As a trauma surgeon, I've always been interested in uh, what we can do for disasters where it becomes very much a logistic problem. And I was actually in Turkey in, in the 1990s when they had that big earthquake near Istanbul. And I went actually, I was on holiday. And I went to the American hospital in Istanbul and I worked for three days helping take care of those trauma patients. And I realized a couple of things at that time is you need experienced people 
and you need equipment and you need logistics and you need support in order to have an impact. Right. And what they what I learned from the uh, earthquake in um, Turkey was after a day or two, the military took over the management and that was the best thing that happened because they can coordinate the logistics and get people where they needed to be and bring equipment. When I went down to Haiti, so I thought I could do the same thing in Haiti on a small scale. I took a team down. The team were fantastic. We had a lot of equipment. We had um, very good anesthesia, surgeons, nurses, nurse practitioners, fellows. And I forgot my lesson from Turkey because there was no infrastructure there. Hmm. And there was no coordination of the care. And so we were there five days that we had to leave. And we took care of a lot of people and we did a lot of good. But we had to leave because we ran out of equipment and there was no uh, security. And things were getting out of control. So... I learned that same lesson again, but now as a participant in Haiti. But my team, they were remarkable. They did a hell of a job. And I think the people appreciated what we did. And it was a small drop in a big problem, but at least we tried. I've got some police department members in my family, and you serve the NYPD and the New York Fire Department as an honorary medical officer and surgeon. What's it like working alongside these amazing people? I love taking care of all of our first responders. I do the, even the New York State Police. And it's not honorary. I take care of them. And they're all running into the building when we're running out, or they're running into a uh, terrible situations where uh, gunshots and people are being killed, and they do it. With, they don't even think, go ahead and do it. And most of them are really good people trying to do a good job. So it's been an honor for me to take care of these folks. And to continue doing so. 9-11 anniversary was recently. I was just wondering if you had any reflections uh, as a surgeon there in New York? Absolutely, I do. So uh, I was head of the disaster response from HSS and New York Presbyterian at the time of 9-11. In actual fact, I was just about to do surgery at HSS when the nurse manager of the operating room came into my room and said, Dr. Helford, we might might have a disaster brewing because a plane has hit the uh, the plane tender. This is on 9-11. In my mind, I thought, well, maybe it's a Cessna or Piper Cup or something like that, and it's got lost in the city and hit the World Trade Center. So I said, well, keep me informed. And then something, I had a premonition or something, I said to my anesthesia. I hadn't started the surgery yet. There was anesthesia was on board, but I hadn't started... So I said to the anesthesia, just give me a moment. And I broke scrub and I walked out to the lounge to see the, the plane hit the uh, World Trade Center, a real plane. And I realized this was it. So we closed down the hospital and closed down New York Hospital and we prepared our disaster plan. And unfortunately, because of the nature of that, that uh, disaster and what happened in 9-11, we didn't get to save or treat enough people. So, yes, we uh, took care of about, uh, I think it was 142 people in the first 24 hours. But you had to be able to run to get to us because if you couldn't run, you didn't make it. So there was most of the injuries were burns, eye injuries, shrapnel. It was a terrible time because we were frustrated. We, We had the resources. We knew we could help a lot of people. The circumstance of the way the buildings came down and the people were injured. And we also lost three paramedics. I lost a lot of people in the fire department I've been taking care of for years. It was terrible. Just speaking on behalf of me, besides the Pearl Harbor Museum, the most sobering site I've ever visited was that church across from the World Trade Center. And I just wanted to say thank you 
for your work supporting and treating these heroes. It's just amazing stuff. And also that for anybody who might be listening, if you have an opportunity to come to New York, you should go to the museum, the World Trade Center Museum. Now it's reopened, and it's really um, sobering. Will do. I, I'll definitely check that out. It's it's hard to look at it, but you need to look at it. I got to ask you a, a couple trauma questions. Tiger Woods, unfortunately, became a celebrity trauma case to, not too long ago. I was wondering if you could tell the audience about the classification of the injury and what would you be telling me recovery-wise if I showed up in your emergency room with the same fracture pattern? So I'm going to first uh, answer that a little differently if I can. Sure. Uh, we didn't take care of Tiger initially, but we HSS were involved in his care when he came back to, and I was peripherally involved on a daily basis, not actually there, but peripherally involved. So I really can't talk too much about him and his injury. I can just tell you generically. Sure. You understand? Because that would not be right. But he had an, an open injury to his leg and he had an injury to his ankle and his foot. These are devastating injuries. Everybody's been doing a good job to try and get these things to heal. They don't heal always as you want because they open injuries, they get contaminated, they get infected, they lose some bone. He's not out of the woods yet, but I think the team taking care of him from Cedar Sinai doing a good job. And he's working very hard in his rehab. And I think we just leave it at that. You've produced an incredible body of work around a procedure a lot of surgeons like to use a telephone for, acetabular fractures. You brought it up earlier. I'm just wondering, what drew you to the pelvis initially? One injury in the orthopedic sphere that was the most mortal people died from, most morbid people had long-term complications from, and was the most difficult to treat were pelvis and acetabulum. So I thought, you know, if I'm really going to be an orthopedic trauma surgeon, I should really try and become better and have us do a better job taking care of these patients, taking care, saving their lives and restoring them to their normal lives after these devastating injuries. You must understand in those days, there were no airbags, there were no seat belts, cars weren't built the way they built today. So we saw a lot of these injuries from automobile accidents as well. It looks like a, just a difficult procedure to do from the surgeon's perspective, right? Or the, have the instruments caught up with it? I think it's it's become easier with time. But yes, um, it's difficult because it's, you have to uh, operate around some arteries, nerves, veins, big soft tissues, a lot of uh, things that you can damage trying to fix it. The surgery is complicated. You don't get to see everything. You have to understand the anatomy without seeing everything. I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons why it's a complicated procedure. And you have um, a lot of bleeding risks and you have nerve risks. So I think it has all, all the, the things that worry us. And if it's an open injury, there's in, especially pelvic fractures. And if there's disruption of the bowel or the bladder or the rectum, becomes much more complicated. Another thing that drove me to do these injuries, to, to try and help with this, is I like working as a team member. These are the injuries where we have to work with our general surgery, trauma colleagues, we have to work with new, neurosurgeons, we have to work with urologists, to work with plastic surgeons. It really is a team effort, and I think that that's rewarding. I've been hearing a lot about dual plating for periprosthetic fractures these days, and your most recent paper addressed that very topic. Any thoughts on that? When you have periprosthetic fractures, you don't have total access to the whole bone because you have an implant in it from a, 
from a previous trauma or from a joint replacement. And so your access to fix the bone is less. Your opportunity to get fixation in the bone is less. So we've sort of popularized using uh, two implants instead of one. Maybe they're smaller implants, maybe they're longer, but it allows you to give, uh, allows you to fix in more than one plane, which allows you to mobilize the patient and promote healing more predictably. I got to ask, as you look back over your trauma career, if you had to pick one innovation that you think changed the face of trauma treatment the most, what would it be? I'm going to give you two rather than one. Okay. Resuscitation and our ability to save lives and limbs generally, not just orthopedics, but with all the specialties we've just talked about, uh-huh. anesthesia, all, all the resuscitation techniques, has allowed us then to uh, have much greater success in saving limbs and saving people. That's been unique, number one. I think from a point of view of what we do as orthopedic trauma surgeons, I would say probably the ability to see what you've got with it now with uh, CT scan. MRI, better x-ray quality, intraoperative x-ray, especially in orthopedics when we're dealing with bones, I think that's probably been the biggest impact on us being able to do a better job. I think surgery surgery. I, I don't think we're better surgeons than old-time surgeons who didn't have all of this. We just do a better job now because we know exactly what we're doing. We know exactly what the injury is. And if we're trained to be real surgeons, just like old-time surgeons, I think we, as they, can do an excellent job. Now we just know much, so much more, and we know so much more beforehand, before going to the operating room, planning what you're going to do. And I think we know much more in the operating room now with fluoroscopy or intraoperative CT or various other imaging techniques that have really revolutionized our ability. What do you think the most revolutionary implant breakthrough has been over the years? That's a damn good question. I don't think there's been one. Total hip arthroplasty is probably the best operation, best implant uh, ever been devised. Right. And the results from total hip, and, and even for trauma patients who have, you know, those kind of fractures that you would fix with a, with a total hip arthroplasty. If you look at the risk, benefit, and outcome in all of surgery, all of surgery, everything, not just orthopedics, the two most successful procedures are total hip replacement and cataracts. Cataract's a pretty simple thing, but, you know, just think of the impact. Right. The total hip arthroplasty with the low risk of complications, the implants that we have, the ability for patients to walk on them right away, regain your life when you really have chronic lump and hip pain and inability to sleep at night, that's dramatic. So I would say total hip arthroplasty is, in orthopedics, still today, the best implant. I've read so many uh, articles with your name on them, looking at the vascular structures of the femoral head and the implications of working around them. Hip preservation is on your HSS page as a specialty of yours. I'm just curious, Dr. Helfett, what have you learned on this journey and would love to hear the source of your passion on the whole subject? Um, just like I mentioned before about the more we know, the better off we'll be. I don't think we really studied the vascularity of everything the way we could study it today, where we can actually inject and see live with uh, new techniques of MRI exactly and quantitate the exact blood supply to various parts of the body. We know where the big vessels are, but we don't know exactly where all the vessels are going in because 
if if it's a cadaver, it's it's already dead, and it's not there are no vessels that are pumping, and li- we don't want to expose all of these in a live patient. So this technology has really helped us understand, and the more we understand about the blood supply, the better we can protect it or replace it. My colleague Dean Lorich, who uh, was my fellow and became my friend, colleague, and an outstanding surgeon and researcher. We started doing a lot of these vascularity studies just to increase our understanding and knowledge of the blood supply in areas where blood supply has been a problem. And so that's how my interest got stimulated. To be perfectly frank, Dean Lorich, may he rest in peace, uh, was the driver. He did most of the work. I took some of the credit. I was going to ask you about him. He seemed like he was an amazing surgeon and and human being. Dean Lorich, um, I miss him every day. Excellent surgeon. Very smart guy, workaholic. He was most loyal colleague and became a friend. My wife's goddaughter to his kids, and he made me a better surgeon. Dr. Helfit, you won an Orthopedics Blue Ribbon article award in 2019 for a paper on the subject we just talked about, uh, the vascular structures in the femoral head. I was just curious, where are we now? What tools do we have in the shed for patients that are in the throes of early onset AVN or fracture-related vascular compromise? I don't believe we've made any impact to the early AVN because that means that the blood supply is already compromised. Right. I think where we have made an impact because of Dean's work and our work and our understanding and also Rhino Guns, who started this whole process and got us involved in the blood supply to the femoral head, is that now we are able to take care of injuries better by preserving the blood supply and not compromising the blood supply by what we do and save the hip. And then we also have the ability now, not when the blood supply is compromised, but when the hip is Uh, certain developmental or injuries, we can now dislocate the hip or do other things, understanding how to preserve the blood supply and still solve the problem. So it's been unique. I read a recent article with your name on it that came out uh, regarding young patients with displaced femoral neck fractures and would love to hear more about the fibular strut graft augmentation and the novel fixed angle locking plate that was discussed in the paper. Uh, Fixing young people with a fracture of the neck of the femur, which is between the head and the shaft, has has always been um, one of the more challenging problems and surgeries because you want to preserve the blood supply as best as possible to the head because all the blood supply comes through the neck to the head. So very often gets injured at the time of the fracture and the displacement or from the surgery. So, And then getting it perfectly reduced without compromising the blood supply and getting it reduced and fixed in a way that would heal in an area where it doesn't heal as readily is the reason for our interest and work. And Dean Lorridge popularized using the fibula, which is an allograph strut as a biological strut to help uh, preserve the healing and to reduce it. And then now we have us, and now there are others, Uh, implants that are better designed to reduce and fix these fractures so we can save a young patient from needing a total hip. What's the worst fracture you've ever seen? Uh, Too too many to list. The worst injuries for me, uh, and this is a philosophical answer, not just describing it. The worst injuries were kids that uh, have horrific accidents. Yeah. So when I was in Tampa, we'd see some of these kids who would get chewed up by motorboats with drunk drivers on motorboats and they just the propeller would just chew up the kids. Or kids with burns or 
kids run over by automobiles. I mean, as a parent, I think so. For me, the worst injuries are always kids. And the worst injuries that happened in kids were the worst injuries I've ever seen because you knew they could never be quite what they were before if they survived. Takes the most out of you. Yeah, I can't imagine. If we're going to talk about rain, we got to talk about sunshine for a minute. Is there a success story that really stands out to you over your career that that you look back on and it uh, puts a smile on your face? This is not just a surgeon success. Right. Most of our successes uh, mandate that you've had a team that can help you do what you need to do. You've got a hospital system that allows you to do what you want to do. You've got the resources to do. You've got a family that uh, are motivated to get better. You've got uh, rehab. The surgery part or the resuscitation is just the first part of the success. If you can instill in your patients and the families and the support group the passion for trying to make things better, that's probably the biggest success we have. Well, along that line, Dr. Helfit, what do you want your legacy to be? Good parent, number one. People respect you for your integrity. That's very important for me. Good surgeon and good mentor and educator. That's enough. That's a good list. Regarding the educator side, your publication list left me shopping for a new printer. Is there any (laughs) one publication in particular, as you look back over your career, is there one that jumps out at you the most? Is This is one I'm so proud of. No, but I can tell you there's some I'm not so proud of. <laughs> <laughs> the most important thing I think in, in my career and publications is the publications that have actually changed the way we do something or improved the clinical outcome. There are a lot of other publications that did not do that, and that's part of being an academic and part of publications. But for me... The most important ones is where someone else read that publication and was able to understand an injury better or was able to solve an injury better or was able to do the surgery better. Those are the important ones. And there's a slew of those in there, but those are the ones I'm most proud of. Your name is involved in some really great healthcare industry relationships, really innovative companies. And I was just wondering, is there any one in particular that you'd like to tell the uh, the audience about? Well, I was very involved, as you mentioned, with this company, Synthes, and I was uh, part of the AO and part of uh, the board of Synthes. And I was very proud of my involvement, both in the AO, which continues today, and with that company, Synthes, and the symbiosis those two had and what we were able to do worldwide. So that's one. I'm no longer on the board. The company has been rebought by someone else. The other one that I really enjoy at the present time, and I think we mentioned that earlier, was uh, My Medical Images. And that is a um, one of the banes of our orthopedic or uh, surgical practice is gaining, the uh, in a timely fashion, the images of an injury or whatever it is especially those that are done at uh, institutions or places not where you work. And so you get a call about a patient or the patient comes in and you don't have access to those images or to all the investigations that were done. And that's a big problem in healthcare. And and for images, it's used the CD or they can't transfer them digitally. And we get a lot of CDs, 400 companies that make CDs and some we can't open and some we can't read and, it's a it's a problem, and people have to have them repeated or have delayed in their treatment. And my medical images, through um, some protected technology, is able to take any image, download it to the cloud, 
their own cloud, an Amazon cloud, which is HIPAA protected. That means that it's privacy protected. And I can go to that cloud and I can pull it, whatever it is that they downloaded, I can pull it up instantaneously. And in a DICOM format, which is the format we need to be able to read X-rays, CTs, MRIs, whatever it is, just the same way a radiologist would. And for trauma patients, especially trauma patients being treated elsewhere from their original resuscitation or subsequently, it's been unique. Is there anything you want to do that you haven't done yet? Be a better golfer. <laughs> I started playing golf about 15 years ago. never haven't played it before. I've realized the Peter Principle, I've reached my, I'm a now bogey golfer. It's never going to get any better. But I enjoy it very much. And I have fun doing it. And I have fun spending time with some friends on a golf course. Don't take it very seriously. I've come to the realization that I'm a much better surgeon than I am a golfer. <laughs> Nothing's going to change. <laughs> right. Once I've accepted that, I'm fine. Well, Gary Player is quite a famous South African golfer. I actually know Gary Player quite well. Uh, he's a friend. He is an icon in South Africa. He's like the, in South Africa, Gary Player is like Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer here. Yeah. He's a remarkable human being, a role model, great person, great golfer, and he's become a close friend and I, one I cherish because every time I'm with him, it's uplifting and I learn from him. I'm not talking about golf, I'm talking about life. Remarkable guy. Mr. Fitness, isn't that what they call him? Uh, every time I see him, and I've learned now, he he punches me in my stomach first thing. He doesn't shake hands first. He punches me, and I've learned now to tense up and make my stomach harder than hell. <laughs> he hits me in the stomach and he says, "Good, you working out?" He doesn't realize I just did that for him at that moment. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. But he is a fitness fanatic, and but he's also. Um, I just like uh, I could just give you a little vignette. I was at uh, the Masters as his guest couple of years ago for a couple of days and it's out on the morning of the um, we out on the practice range before he and Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer do the, the tee off at the Masters and so it's 6.30 in the morning and they're on the, on the practice round there and they hit a few balls and they're chatting away and I'm sort of standing aside and then they go to the first tee which is a sort of unique thing about the Masters and on the way there, the whole bunch of kids are there with things to sign and everything. And Gary Player stops at 6.30 in the morning. Most of them have their cap on and just hand the book to him. And he says, take your cap off, say good morning, shake hands, be happy to sign your book. But that's what you do. That's the kind of guy he is. Wow. I, I read that he is probably the most traveled golfer in the history of the sport, and I know that you've done presidential guest addresses all over the world. Any uh, country outside the U.S. that's your favorite to visit? Because of the AO, I visited Switzerland a lot. So that's one of my favorites. I think the other one must be the U.K. because they gave me the greatest honor of all. You know, Watson, Sir Reginald Watson Jones is one of the most famous orthopedic surgeons of all time and wrote books on fractures. They invited me to give his memorial lecture. So that must count. 
You know, as we look around the world, I've got to ask you this question. You've worked on a lot of dignitaries and celebrities, and I know as a rep, that would cause a lot of stress for me. I just wanted to know, what's it like on your side of the table standing over a, a patient that has that kind of celebrity status? Is it Does it create more stress for you, or is it just uh, focus on the bone? You know, that's a very good question, and there's obviously more stress for everybody except me. For me, the problem is the injury, and the problem is how we treat the injury. However, there's a lot of more involved in the hospital, the nurses, the press, the media, the family, the interested parties. That's more stressful, and I try and block all of that out. So I don't think it's specifically for me the stress is greater. I think for the whole system, that's much greater. Right. And I think it's very important as a doctor or as a surgeon, we should treat everybody the same. I don't negotiate care. I think uh, if you have that uh, philosophy as a doctor and a surgeon, and you just do what you know is the right thing to do, irrespective of what other people are trying to coerce you to do or influence you to do, just do the right thing. Most times that works out just fine and there's less stress because you've done the right thing. You've had the honor of training over 50-some fellows in one of the most prestigious trauma programs in the country. What advice do you like to give surgeons just starting out in today's environment? You have to work hard to be successful. Second of all, uh, you have to be available to be successful. Third, you have to be honest, honest with yourself, honest with your staff, and honest with your patients. And the fourth thing I tell them is, we all need help at some stage. Don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. That's great advice, sir. I wrote that down. Uh, we've got a lot of sales reps that listen to the show, and I know you've had your share of reps in and out of your operating room. If uh, one of your kids was going to be a rep and you were sitting around the kitchen table giving them advice, uh, what would you tell them? I would tell them first, be prepared. You should know about whatever you are promoting and you should know about what's written about whatever you're promoting. That's the first thing. So education and making the effort to stay updated with the information is very important. Now with cell phones and iPads and all, it's easier, but nevertheless, you need to do all that. The second thing is do not volunteer information or advice. Wait until you ask for information or advice. You don't know what the surgeon's thinking you don't know what the, some of the issues are. You're just looking at one small piece of the pie. Just be available, have whatever the surgeon needs, and when the surgeon needs help, provide the help. But don't uh, be a source of chatter and information that's unasked for. That's good advice. Dr. Helfett, you are truly the Gary Player of orthopedic trauma in my book. My audience and myself collectively tip our hat in your direction. Thank you so much for your thank you so much for your work and dedication to the craft. You are amazing at what you do. And I just want to say thank you for coming on Device Nation. I think you've been drinking the wrong Kool-Aid. <laughs> I, I thank you for those words and I thank you for having me on and uh, I wish you all the best and I look forward to maybe meeting one day. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you truly just heard from one of the icons in our space, Dr. David Helfett. Thank you so much for coming on the show to share your life with us. And yes, I have drunk the Kool-Aid. Raspberry was always my favorite. I think we need periarticular punch 
in his honor. Well, before we close up shop, I want to share something with you that I think is so cool courtesy of Dr. Helfit. I used to cycle quite a bit, and I've kind of paid the price for it. Some cervical radiculopathy issues, a little numbness in the fingers. I went and got an MRI. I wanted to share those images with a couple friends of mine around the country, and then that's where it got a little complicated. How do I do that? Do I burn a disc? Do I try to manually send it through Dropbox? That didn't work for me. And then Dr. Helfit told me about my medical images. I created a new account in literally two minutes uploaded my images to the cloud, and boom, I have a QR code and a link that I can share with anybody, anytime, anywhere. That's a disruptive technology, not only for me personally, but I think for the surgeons managing images in their office. And I think it's going to be really awesome on LinkedIn, where a lot of surgeons are showing great content these days. This is going to allow them to share more than just a JPEG. Check it out mymedicalimages.com. Thank you in advance for sharing your clinical opinion, what you think I should get done on this. And thank you, most importantly, for being part of the audience. This is the big ship coming our way, the business of medicine. And I can't think of anybody I'd rather have in the boat with me than you. Hope you all have an awesome week and look forward to seeing you next time.